I want you to keep it tuned right here. Up next, it's the McShank Podcast Boys, Ryan and Clayton, coming at you on KMPN in sunny Los Angeles. Get it right. Jeez, uh, we're, we're already fucking up. We already fucked it up. Another <laughs> false start. Damn it. Well, Two years in a row. Uh, well, here we are anyway. It's 2023, I think it is, right? If right. I can... Oh, man. Two, uh, two carry the one, 2023. Yeah. Welcome to the McShank Podcast on MPN. It's that time of year, everybody. It's the one you've all been waiting for, and we've been waiting to give it to you, the annual top 10 list. I'm Ryan McCarran. I'm excited to be here. Who are you? I'm Clayton Shank, your podcaster in arms, and I'm also ecstatic to be here to see how we overlap this year in film and where we part ways vehemently and all of the above. It's always a (laughs) fun time. It's always a fun time. It's always a fun time to record. Now, normally we're in person. Normally we try to make a push to be in person, but I notice, and you may notice on the recording, we are not right now. Clayton, I see you are in what looks like probably a French prison of some kind. (laughs) I guess in its own way, it is kind of a French prison, Uh, but what's going on? Tell me, what are you doing? Uh, Where are you right now? It's a prison of my own making, Ryan. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm in uh, Montreal, Quebec. I am not I have not been formally assimilated as a Quebecois yet, but I am here to put the finishing touches on a film, Transformers, that I've been on for close to two years now. And we're just starting to deliver all the final visual effects and get this thing theater ready. It's been a long time coming. And Montreal has been a fixture of my life for the last two years in a very meaningful way. And what better place to end it than here? Yeah, I mean it, it. It's now touched every part of your life, really. You've you've you you were here working on it, and now you're over there. I mean, you said uh, you're you're. We were talking beforehand that, I mean, you're like a couple months away from just being a Canadian citizen. Maybe you should just stay there, get all the healthcare benefits, go get a CAT scan for free, just in case. Ryan, you, know? if you saw what passes for Mexican and Asian food here. No medicinal <laughs> benefits oh. find would supplant it. <laughs> would you like a gravy on your sushi? I don't know. I don't know. I can't do a Quebec accent. I'm not sure. I don't think they can do a Quebec accent either. No. <laughs> <laughs> These corrupt motherfuckers. <laughs> no, yeah. It's I've been here quite a while now. And yeah. I, it, it is like it is like second home in some weird ways. All right, so Clayton's in Quebecois, (laughs) and I'm in America, USA, USA. So did you see a bunch of movies? I mean, you're working very hard. I mean, what is your sense of the year that was 2022 in movies, do you think? For me, it was a stronger year than last year. I I only, the only thing I've seen here is I, I knew if I was going to see Avatar, I had to see it in IMAX 3D. So I actually did that twice at um, one of the local cinemas here that primarily delivers um, you know, English language films. And other than that, I've pretty much just been relying on the smart TV in my hotel room to queue up all my streaming apps, Criterion, nice. movie, HBO, Netflix, all that stuff. And so I've been essentially just catching up either on those platforms or just with the, the digital screeners I get. And 
my yeah my overall take on the year is i think it is a superior year to last year and just as a a slight signifier of that like i didn't give any full five-star reviews and anything that i watched on letterboxd last year at all Mm -hmm. nothing got the full five stars and this year my top three films i gave five stars to all of them so i think so i think it's where it's stronger it's much stronger than last year and okay more of a kind of a genre and quieter film year for me i'm curious what you thought of that because we didn't really spend a whole lot of time together in the past year so i'm really unsure about anything you saw or what your impressions were yeah i i think that i i i feel like i say this every year but i felt like it was very top heavy I felt like the there was a lot that was really good uh, just on the higher end, but the stuff that, because there's a lot of stuff that I really just did not care for, honestly. So, but I think that the first half of the year was way stronger than the second half, personally. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like there is a handful of just like stone cold classics in the first half of the year and then not as much in the second half, which is normally flipped. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like my list is going to probably reflect that a little bit. And I, I feel like this is the year of populism for me. Like I'm, hmm. the, the, this is a very populist list. Interesting. There's, okay. You know, so, and it was, I, I was even surprised putting it together or just even thinking about where I wanted things to rank, where I wanted to put this versus this and everything. And so uh, I think it's going to be pretty reflective of that, and I'm 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 curious. I don't I don't think we'll have the same number one, but uh, I'm always very. We've been wrong before. We have been. Yeah. How many times have we done that? Only like once, three times. Okay. Three times. Okay. Three and a half times if you count 2008. No, I don't count so, 2008. Ah. <laughs> Shoot. Before you go there, uh, bastards, whiplash, and arrival. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I knew those were for sure. I knew those mm-hmm. were, yeah. I don't know if you caught this too, Ryan, but this is kind of a, a banner year for this podcast. This is the 15th year we've amazing. done this. This is a pretty amazing. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, to even be friends this, for that long, you know? I, yeah, we've been friends for only three years longer than that. I know. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, the first show we did, we were still in the recession in 2008. My God, man. Damn. <laughs> Putting the microphone in that red solo cup so we can red stick Dixie it up. Cup, to make, yeah. yeah, yeah. So we can make sure that we can both, you know, sort of get as far into it as we can. Yeah, I mean, you <laughs> noticeably upgrade. You look like as soon as we're done here, you're just gonna do I'm your gonna... your hour spot on the radio. I'm gonna do my Twitch stream after this. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we've gone through a lot of iterations. It's a millennial, Ryan. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> that one year between us is a lot. <laughs> We can never forget about those. We can never forget about those Mike years, the lean Mike years, I guess. Yes. Yes. Mike has not been a part of this program for like 12 years. And yet he comes up on every fucking podcast that we do for some reason. He's just left an indelible mark. (laughs) He's just this like this lingering spectral presence operating just on the peripheral of the microphone. He is finding, finding, finding new ways to fuck with the grammar of top 10 lists. Oh my gosh. And generally common decency. There is a language to this podcast. This is how it goes. He is literally the slender man. Like (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> he is our version of the Slender Man. Mike, we love you. We love you. Rest in peace. Okay. <laughs> Should we get um, into this? Yeah. yeah what do you got? We got more. Go ahead. Go. Just, yeah, but just to cap off this intro here. Yeah, I I think that's already a point of separation because I found the year much more consistently satisfying in terms of when movies were released and how much I was taken by them. And I'm not even sure exactly when my number one and two films came out this year, but I, I think it was probably spring, spring to summer, somewhere in there. But throughout throughout the calendar year, I found a much more consistent and satisfying diet of movies. And sounds like you were mostly in the first half. Yeah, I think so for sure. I don't know why that is, but I don't know what just certain things you feel like would normally hit you that just don't end up really hitting you. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think I started last year when I got us completely off the rails to begin with, with Teton. So right. you want to jump into your number 10 to start us off? Yeah. Uh, in, in that way, in that sense sort of thing. Um, my number 10, uh, is weird. The Al Yankovic story. <laughs> I've not seen this. You know, I had to do it to him, baby. I'm a huge weird Al fan my entire life. My whole family is just filled with weird Al fans. And this was just absolutely a, a, a wonderful little morsel bite. Um, I was able to see it in a theater actually, cause it's on Roku. So you can watch it for free on the Roku channel, which you can get on any of your uh, streaming platforms. But I was lucky enough to be able to see it without commercials in a theater with people. And honestly, it was, you kind of forget because there just aren't comedies really anymore that are released. It's such a shame, but I, there just really is second to none. There's nothing really like seeing a comedy in a theater that's just absolutely hitting. It was the perfect audience. It was at uh, the LA Film Festival Beyond Fest. Mm. So it was a bunch of people that were there and they had like a, a Weird Al a costume contest beforehand and they were going to do like a Q&A with the filmmaker at the at the end of it. So it was a very like pro Al crowd. Oh, and then they paired it with UHF, which we didn't stay for because I've seen that a million times and I wasn't about which to you introduced me to for the first time. I'd never watched UHF until we did it at the old uh, we watched it at the old townhouse for a movie night. Right. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, great so that time. was, oh, so, so great. So this is really kind of in the similar vein of that. I think Al's humor tends to go more in the just sort of zany, really. Uh, I think that's kind of the best phrase I can, I can pick for it, but it knows exactly what it is. Uh, and it's honestly, the movie itself is a parody of his life because none of the stuff in it is real like the story beats and where it actually goes with his rise to fame through the 1980s he dates madonna played by evan rachel wood so yeah they're cameos galore i mean it's i'm not going to spoil a bunch of them but it's just always such a nice breath of fresh air to have a comedy uh just sort of fulfill you as a theatrical uh experience really daniel radcliffe plays weird al and of course he shines and he's such a funny actor. Cause I think it's funny to obviously see him as Al Yankovic. He actually learned some accordion so they could do some of the close-up shots of the accordion and everything. But the it's the whole thing is just delightful. It's a short little like hour and a half thing. And it's just wall to wall jokes 
it's like a Zucker Brothers movie, honestly. It's kind of what it, it's reminiscent of. Um, and so all of that uh, kind of all together, just a great theater experience and, a, and just a funny, funny comedy where there are just so few and far between. So number 10, weird. The Al Yankovic story. Loved it. Yeah. When I saw Weird promoted, I was interested and it was well-received. But the one major obstacle for me going to see it was Daniel Radcliffe himself. I just always found him obnoxious. He's he's not quite an Eddie Redmayne figure in my film life where I just want to just repeatedly punch him in the face for reasons I can't quantify. But he's in the same ballpark. But because he's playing someone else, maybe I'll give it a shot. And Weird Al Yankovic is a kind of an interesting public figure that's just been around since Forever. You and I were in the crib. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll give it a go. I think you should, especially because it's free, it's short, and I mean, man, that hurts my heart to know that Eddie Redmayne is in the same like fucking arena as Daniel Radcliffe. Like, it's not even the same fucking sport for me. I don't know. Well, if the ballpark is called Punchable Faces, <laughs> that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to go to a game there. Horrible. All right. What's <laughs> what's what's your number right. ten? My number ten in vintage McShank podcast history is a cheat so i know well they're inextricably linked and you'll see why so i'm starting off with horror oh oh okay this one i i think i know where you're going and i think i'll give you a pass yeah i'm going with x and pearl yes from, from ty west um they are amongst the most unique and deranged horror films of the year and they just so happen to inhabit the same universe so i mm-hmm. guess we'll call it the pearl cinematic universe the pcu um, i like it wait that PCU. was already a movie wasn't it <laughs> i think so is that the school one i think it was a school one yeah chris yeah. o'donnell i don't remember <laughs> um, so this is a return to kind of the the back road world of 70s horror inhabited by the likes of like texas chainsaw massacre where there's a bunch of horny teenagers and homicidal killers with even creepier families but I think West distinguishes his films by adding a good bit of humor and melodrama into the mix. X, which came out first, is from the point of view of the the doomed visitors and has a lot of fun with, I guess you'd say, carnal sexuality and the pursuit of the first quote-unquote art porn effort, <laughs> which is the the mythical film with a story that entices as much as Titillates. The, tits, the, the tits and dicks. Yeah. Well, <laughs> did, sure, I, you could say it like that too, I guess. <laughs> I think we knew people like this in film school. Oh, yeah. There, there's some very creative kills featuring like unusual objects, farm tools, and actual crocodiles. But both films mainly serve as a showcase for actress Mia Goth, who is potential fodder for the killer in X and, of course, plays the titular character of Pearl herself in the prequel, which came out second. I think Pearl is the clear Pearl of the two. It's it's just kind of a a very uniquely toned narrative powder keg. I mean, the whole character is this really interesting original creation from Ty West and Mia Goth. It's almost as if you took Kathy Bates and misery and filter through like the technicolor splendor of the wizard of oz <laughs> hmm. um 
for better or worse, Ty West is known for producing well-rounded and considered efforts. And he makes sure that the character of Pearl never really gets lost in all the, the glitz, the glamour, the yearning, and eventually the bloodletting. I've, I've never really seen a horror film like Pearl before. It kind of exists in a universe of one. And if that isn't praise enough, any film that can detour off into a secluded farmland to bring its lead character to orgasm by dry fucking a scarecrow has my never ending respect. Right. So Pearl and X are my joint number 10. That makes a lot of sense. That certainly does. <laughs> I mean, I, I got, you got a grandfather, man. I got to have them both. Oh yeah. I get it. I get it. Okay. I mean, you hate me, but you get it. I do. Yeah, but it's fine. It's fine. What's your number nine, Ryan? Uh, well, I mean, okay, so my number nine is She Said. Mm. And in the vein of your cheat, I actually kind of went back and forth thinking that maybe I could pair She Said and Women Talking in this spot. Because I feel like they both, for me, similar quality, I would say, um, and very linked in terms of the the very female forward. But uh, I didn't do that. I, I made a decision. I, I, I nutted up. I made a decision. And I went with She Said, mainly just because of its adjacent C, is that a word? To Spotlight, my number one <laughs> film from 2015. Me using nutted up in this context is hilarious. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Oh, I didn't even fucking you, think you, about that. You nutted that. up in your exploration of feminism. Fuck. Oh, man. I'm like, I'm an asshole now. Cancel me. Uh, <laughs> but it really, I... I but yes, the I, I am a sucker for kind of like the journalism as a thriller sort of genre. It's always interesting, you know, all the President's Men, Spotlight, this film. There's a you know a, a bunch of others that I, I'm not remembering right now, but this one's mainly driven by the performances. I think Carrie Mulligan really steals the show. Uh, a couple of years after she stole the show uh, in Promising Young Woman, um, I believe you referenced that in your letterbox review of the movie that that Carrie Mulligan really kind of has the the stronger performance of the two. I almost um, wish she was playing the Zoe Kazan role. Cause I, yeah. I, don't, I don't think Zoe Kazan quite has the gravitas to pull it off, even though I know she's giving it her all. I think that, yeah. And, and they are different personality wise. And so it's possible that Mulligan's uh, character needs that sort of gravitas to sort of balance out Zoe Kazan's more doughish sort of uh, approach to it. I would think, um, cause, uh, you know, Kazan doesn't really know kind of what she's getting into and Carrie Mulligan has seen this sort of the, this sort of story before. Um, so she's kind of coming in as like a expert witness, uh, bringing her expertise or something. So, um, but I, but really, I mean, the, the thing that I was struck by and was the wonderful choice to never actually show Harvey Weinstein. So this is a story that, uh, essentially chronicles the New York times or the journey that the New York times went on to uncover and bring to light these um, horrific sexual assault allegations and facts uh, against Harvey Weinstein. But uh, a choice that, that is made in the movie is they never show uh, his face. So they never, it's just a random actor, the back of his head, because I think that a more effective way to tell the story as they did was using his own words and his actions. I think that that speaks more of a volume than any actor playing him ever could. Um, there's a, a a great scene where he comes into the newsroom 
and is sort of yelling at Carrie Mulligan and shouting about, or um, the, the the intent is to see show him shouting about what he perceives to be these false truths, these lies that that these people have told, that these other women have told. But the entire scene is uh, totally silent. So all you do is there's just a, a focus on Carrie Mulligan's character and a slow zoom in, presumably as all of these people are yelling at her and shouting at her sort of because you don't need to bring to light what he's thinking, essentially, <laughs> you know, like we don't need to, to show his sort of his side of the story or what other bullshit he was, he was spewing. So I thought that was a really effective way to uh, handle this particular character. Um, you know, obviously the, the reporting aspect is very well traveled, but kind of dealing with the human aspect of the story and how it affected the writers and in the post me Too movement and um, just that element of it, I think is always uh, a hit in these types of movies. And I think they did a really good job with it too. So number nine is she said. Yeah. Go. Yeah. A, a movie that I, I did like it. I think it was a little lightweight for me just as a film, not speaking to the, the subject matter, but there was one really sure. formal choice that I really liked. It's this, almost like a montage is it a montage i'm not sure but it's getting toward the end and there's this tracking shot through a hallway and it keeps dissolving almost between different hallways in like hotels or something and you just hear an actual audio excerpt of harvey weinstein just going over the whole thing oh my god and that is in, in a that i think Ooh. yeah in a film that i think mostly played it pretty safe and conventional formally that was a really bold touch that i did enjoy yeah I think it, yeah. I, yeah, it went there for sure. Yeah. And Carrie Mulligan, I mean, force of nature, just oh, put, yeah. her, put her in everything. Hall of Fame. Uh, my number nine is The Banshees of Ines Shannon, the simplest and probably best premise of the year. Two friends, one of them just decides one day he doesn't like the other one. This is McDonough's best film for me since his masterpiece in Bruges in 2008 dropped about the same time we started doing this podcast. Mm -hmm. Yep. And when you look at the main players, I think it should be rather obvious why it works so well. Something about this trio of Gleason and Farrell and McDonough just works. In Sharon seems to be kind of both in our world and outside of it, almost like this vivid short story that was just teleported to the screen. Something's just a bit off. Like if you were to kill uh, tilt the camera up on any given shot, you'd see the puppeteer pulling all the strings, but like the, I think like the really good works of fiction, there's these really simple truths that you can extract from all the drama and the gallows humor and whatever world building he's doing. So you know, two friends, one of them's more of a simpleton. He's just content with life and with ritual and just droning on and on about bullshit every day in the local pub. And you got the other who's more of a born again malcontent <laughs> who mm-hmm. he wakes up one day and just examines the concept of time kind of for what it is in the abstract. And that is, you know, it hits, especially at his advanced age, it's fleeting. And he decides to sever the relationship and focus more on his intellectual and creative pursuits, which he doesn't think he'll be able to do if he keeps his friend in his life. So as the the second person becomes more obstinate and resolute, the first person becomes more 
despondent and 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 desperate and the film just goes on and on toward potential self-destruction and some fucked up examples of self-mutilation oh, yeah. <laughs> to make its points but i think it does speak kind of powerfully to just the void that can come from a lack of human connection where once it used to be and i also i mean i I love whatever the fuck Barry Keegan's doing in this movie. I don't know what it is, but for some reason, I really love the performance. That kind yeah. of, it's really weird, but by the very end, there's something kind of touching and poignant about it. And shout out to Carrie Condon, who also plays Farrell's introspective, uh, ground, more grounded wife who kind of has to negotiate an armistice between <laughs> Gleason and and feral but then you know realizes eventually that this this tree has no more fruit left to bear um but yeah i i loved it big fan just a really absorbing and melancholy effort from mcdonough so this one it's not on my list i'll tell you that it's on everybody's list though everybody loves it i don't know what i what malfunction it's your licorice pizza what yeah right exactly what major malfunction is going on in me and like and and that kind of also led to the way that my list is constructed a little bit is because this one just kind of left me cold. And I understand that's kind of the point. It's not supposed to be an uplifting film and I didn't expect it really to be that, but it just, I wasn't really entirely sure what it is. It was really trying to say. And, you know, I mean, there are just, there are moments in it that are just darkly, deeply funny and just very profoundly sad and and wonderful. But Overall, it it just it just didn't quite come together the way that I would have wanted or the way that I would have hoped. But I know that I'm in the minority on this one, so I don't know if that's something that uh, take that for what it's worth. I guess, but yeah, well, McDonough left me in a ditch with three billboards outside Ebby, Missouri. Like I True. Actively, actively disliked that film and Seven Psychopaths. I was kind of more lukewarm on, and and this was kind of his first re- true return to form for me mm-hmm. since 2008, where something about the story and the world it creates just clicked with yeah. me, even though you are far from the only person who's, <laughs> I think this movie has left cold. So mm-hmm. I think it's kind of a divisive movie that way. For sure. Uh, well, my number eight is the Northman. Mm. And uh, I'd heard that this movie did well on VOD, which is great because it didn't really do that well, I think in it's the uh, initial theatrical, but I think, making if that is indeed true and i can't confirm but i'm hoping that it is because we really need more of these weird interesting r-rated action movies that are just kind of like going for it i mean robert eggers's name is or his style is just all over this really uh and the star is alexander skarsgård who i don't think a, a more perfect actor the <laughs> could fit into a part like this. I mean, they just fit together perfectly like a glove as he stars as Amleth, the son of a, a king. The king meets his demise at the hands of a treasonous family member, but Amleth is able to escape and begin a life as a mercenary. Now that is just the most baseline story of it, but uh, Eggers is uh, just really just on one in this particular uh, outing for me. I mean, there is just a number of, stunningly shot scenes from him specifically in the first hour when we get a drug fantasy with willem dafoe and amleth oh, as, as a child yeah best fucking scene in the movie and then i mean you basically just breakneck 
a transition to the absolute banger of a sequence when Amleth and the other Vikings just systematically dismantle a village piece by piece that can only be described as clinical, really. Um, but in just a few short movies, he's Eggers at least has kind of established himself as someone that people seem to want to work for because this movie it did have a big budget. Uh, and it's an all-star cast. The Nicole Kidman, Ethan Hawke, Willem Dafoe, Skarsgård, Anya Taylor-Joy. I mean, the year of her continues, really. Um, but everybody seems to want to work with this guy. But it's really a movie that only he could make. Uh, it's got this jaw-rattling score of, of, you know, this sort of like chanting and, and, and it just is just fits it perfectly. Uh, the dreamlike aspect, which has sort of become a hallmark of his um, filmmaking, really. Uh, but everything in it seems uh, just just very interesting. There's just always just something interesting going on all the time. And I just love that it alternates between action packed and what the fuck in very quick succession. So more, please, please, please. So, <laughs> yeah, this is probably my I, I really dug that kind of i guess you call it a baptism sequence early on you were describing with the foe mm-hmm. the toothless shaman of sorts right because you don't know what he's doing i mean you have no idea they're, they're just sort of climbing through this thing they're, him and ethan hawk you think oh they're going to have this bonding moment you're not really sure where it's going to lead and then it's only after the fact that you're like oh of course that's where it was leading because it was a robert eggers movie <laughs> yeah i it's funny because i this is probably I was a little more lukewarm on this one. It was it's probably my least favorite Eggers film, just for the reason that I found it oddly conventional by his standards, even though the the historical attention to detail is fantastic and I mm-hmm. love that. Um something about the expanded canvas of it all sucked a little of his charm out of it for me. And I don't know why, but Nicole Kidman just yanked me right out of the movie every time she was on screen. Like I can't, she. I just see Nicole Kidman whenever she is, she's, she's just way too famous for this movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I don't think she has that kind of a chameleon-like repertoire that Willem Dafoe has, or even like you know Ethan Hawke totally disappears. Oh from yeah. Him father character but nicole kidman just was a sore thumb to me in this movie for some reason because she is Uh, the most famous person i mean she is like uh just in another stratosphere of fame from just about everybody else in the movie and so yeah i can i can see that she fits in better with with people maybe on her level potentially i i can yeah there's a there's a there's a a fun narrative detour where the antagonist and the protagonist meet at a much earlier point in the film than you're expecting, which I did enjoy. And I, I do agree with your root point that we need a hundred more movies like this. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping we get them, whether they're from him or from somebody else, but just get weird and get violent. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm all for that. Let the freak flag fly. Woo. Moving on to my number eight will be the, a staggeringly the first of three documentaries on my list this year wow I've never had more than one I, yeah i don't know if i've ever even had one <laughs> i think i had exit through the gift shop one year and mm. and i think minding the gap showed up another year so yeah. occasionally oh free solo was on your list wasn't solo it? Was about yeah yeah, yeah. That's right. okay yeah. yeah that's right okay so i had two one year and this will yeah. this will up it by one but the first documentary is called fire of love hmm it's uh it's directed by Sarah Dosa, not familiar with her, but Mm-mm. it is 
a Nat Geo documentary. You can find it on Disney Plus right now. It's probably 90 minutes or so. But it goes in the exact opposite way that Banshees of Inisherin goes in terms of relationships. Uh, so Fire of Love, which weirdly, it sounds like it could be, it could, it could be like a lost Jimi Hendrix album or something. Right, yeah. Um, so it centers on this real-life French couple named Katia and Maurice Kraft, who are the public intellectuals, and they're also renowned volcanologists for two decades. Like, they live and breathe volcanoes. The film consists almost entirely of footage of their public appearances, as well as footage from their own film library, where they document their trips around the world to study, you know, one of nature's most destructive, violent, and beautiful, awesome displays of power. They, to kind of build drama between where they go throughout the film, they distinguish between what they call red and gray volcanoes, which I had no idea. So red is your typical like lava flow volcano where it, you know, drips out the side, it goes down, it's deadly, it's dangerous, but you can still outpace it. You can outrun it because it's never going to pick up that kind of speed. Um, whereas the gray volcanoes are the actual danger, really dangerous volcanoes where it gets more gaseous and the, the elements are more, have a more viscous thing. There's more of an explosive element to it. Um, and so depending on where they go, they kind of describe what the volcano is and they're mostly looking at them up close in their dormant states, although they do get pretty close to some active volcanoes throughout the film. Um, but basically they're there just kind of looking for clues and hints to better understand and predict these cataclysmic events. And they, as a couple, as a husband and wife, they have a deep love for each other, but I think we get the feeling it's their, their shared interest that drives the relationship more than anything, as well as kind of this ethos that got them there. Like they, they live on the fringe of society. They do work that could and, eventually does kill them. I mean, no, no spoilers. It's right in the synopsis. And yeah, I see that. Yeah. Um, but from all the, the singular beauty and like spectacle on display, there's also kind of a disarming sadness to it where they almost express kind of like a disappointment in and in a detachment from humanity that led them to their current occupation. Cause they, they find the beauty and the grandeur in that as opposed to everyday life. So it's tragic yet kind of weirdly, uplifting as a portrait um just using the subjects themselves as i said uh yeah i I would highly recommend it to anyone and that's from a guy who would never voluntarily get within 50 miles of a suspect volcano no no thank you i'm good yeah yeah quite a good quite a good experience there's enough danger just in our everyday lives i don't need to up it uh with all of that so um all right well Moving on uh, to my number seven. So I don't normally have documentaries and I don't normally have animated films. And I guess you could sort of say this one lives sort of in between both. Um, but my number seven is Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. Oh, I haven't uh, seen it. Oh, it's a delight. He's the little amphidromus that could. <laughs> it's just a beautifully shot tight picture that. I mean, really, just at the end of the day, put a smile on your face from the first moment to the last shot. Uh, Jenny Slate voices Marcel, Marcel the Shell with shoes on. And this brings a lovely like levity to the part, but also just a sense of wonder for the outside world. Almost a reminder of the 
childlike wonderment with how things work or what could be waiting on the other side of this or or anything. And and it's sort of like a very uh, go for it kind of attitude, which I, I, I really appreciated. But Marcel soldiers on with little to no fear of the outside world. And in fact, has adapted perfectly to his world within a world. So he kind of knows what the internet is. He kind of knows what this is. He kind of knows what this is, but he just kind of is able to call things all together. There is no explanation as to how he was created or how he was able to just live. He just kind of is. He just sort of exists in this world. Um, but the the film almost, there's a, a meta feel to it since it, it started as just like a, a YouTube short and it became a film. And in the film, Marcel gains viral po- popularity by being a talking show on YouTube. So it kind of has mm. this like inner, so inner. Mi- yeah. Yeah. Which I did not expect really. Uh, and amazingly, they somehow managed to rope Isabella Rossellini in as a voice and 60 minutes, Leslie Stahl as herself, who eventually ends up doing an interview with Marcel and, and, he watches 60 minutes every week and just loves Leslie Stahl. So that is just a, just a nice little, uh, a fun little touch for a movie that probably costs like 20 bucks. Um, but it's a film that will melt anyone's cold, cold heart. It's funny. It's touching. It's a brisk 90 minutes and you'll, you'll just feel better about yourself and the world when you see it. And um, so, yeah, I couldn't. Henry Selleck, right? No, is that Henry Selleck? no. He did a film this year. I thought it was that one. No, this is uh this is just kind of like a passion project. It was started uh like Jenny Slate was involved. She's mm. obviously the voice. Oh it, yeah. It was her okay. yeah, it was her. It was basically like they were married, I think, or dating at the time when they made it, and then they broke up and then they uh are still like working together making this film. So uh making it like as 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 a feature. So um yeah, it's really funny. If you haven't seen the shorts on YouTube, you could just type in Marcel the Shell and there's just a few different sequences or like a few different like shorts about him finding out new ways to do things and kind of you see his everyday life and how he adapts being a one literal one inch shell with shoes on so um (laughs) yeah it's 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 really delightful and it's just a lot of fun and uh so just in keeping with my sort of populist uh list really like these you know more like uh popular-ish type of film. So Marcel the Shell with Shoes on, one of my faves, one of the, something I'm going to watch probably um, for the rest of my life. It's just uh, a wonderful little movie. Yeah, I had an anemic animated film diet this year. The only one I can think of that I saw was Turning Red. But man, my my animated films just go down and down every year, it feels like. Yeah, I, well, there's just fewer and fewer of them too, I think. They're just more concentrated and they're just that you know it's just like the comedy you used to just have one sort of sprinkled in every so often and now there's only like one or two and if you miss it then it's gone so yeah um, yeah. yeah i was really happy i saw this one yeah yeah i'll catch up with it now that i got your seal of approval because it did look like kind of an odd little eccentric movie yeah that probably dig mm-hmm. um my number seven is resurrection Ooh. This, this is a film by andrew seem Simmons. i'm gonna say Simmons. it's a bit of a sleeper film it kind of came out of the festival circuit this year and pretty much got swept under the rug but it's a very uncomfortable sit <laughs> a disturbing tale of um repressed emotional trauma and psychological terror that is fronted by the ever dependable rebecca hall 
She needs uh, to be in more stuff, man. Whom, I, I, yeah, I've just come to terms with her as representing a, a must-see screen presence from here on out. Um, she was in a horror film a couple of years ago called The Night House that is really creepy. I thought Totally was, underrated, yeah. Yeah, great stuff in it. And she put out a very delicate directorial debut with the film Passing, which I thought was was very interesting and that's just some of her recent work and i think the first thing i ever saw her in, saw her in was vicky christina barcelona way back when if i'm remembering right um but uh she plays a a working mother whose life begins to unravel at the arrival of a mysterious man in her life that she knew in her youth played by a charming yet sinister tim roth does he it's play anything a, else? <laughs> it's such a genuine treat seeing Tim Roth get this kind of a, a spotlight again in a really character-centric role just to flex those muscles. Uh, the film is just this testament to the, the the corrosive and just impenetrable wounds that adults conflict on, especially impressionable youth. And the narrative just kind of slowly ratchets up to some very intensely dark and perverse places um hall's character goes through the blender at the risk of totally alienating her daughter and even her own sanity uh the director just very gradually brings the backstory into focus and keeps most of the exposition just kind of on the sidelines until the last 45 minutes when the film just crystallizes in this powerful had to be like 10 to 12 minute maybe 8 to 10 minute single take monologue from hall and this this twisted, just kind of winner-take-all finale set piece that just airs out all of the, the demons of the past and their, and their full glory. Like I said, not a very comfortable sit, but if you had the experience I did watching Resurrection, you just won't be able to pry your eyes from the screen. So uh, most people probably didn't hear about this one. I think it was completely under the radar, but worth your time. Yeah, I'm sure... Uh... I'm sure my wife has probably heard of it. That she's her and a few of her friends are big horror shutter people. You know, we've got shutter on and stuff like that. So um we did watch a few of those um like you know indie horror movies around Halloween time. But this one uh, I, I didn't catch. But I'm looking at the I mean, just again, what a what a cast these people do and stuff. And these are the types of movies that just go to streaming. Now, these are the types of movies that we used to get. This is the, the, the middle class of movies that are, that are just kind of disappearing. And it's a shame that you have to be like, Oh, you got to go to the, you got to get this and you got to get this and you got to get this in order to be able to just to see it. So. Yeah. Very, very cinematic experience that sure that should have got a wide theatrical release and yeah. intelligent screenplay that, that really makes you check your own sanity from time to time. But it, it it goes to some weird places, and for that, I appreciated it. Yeah, I'll have to. I've written it down. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. What's uh, your number six, Ryan? My number six is Park Chan Wook doing Hitchcock with Decision to Leave. Yeah, that was a good one. Yep. Uh, I mean, this that is a film. Good, yeah, that was a good one. Oh yeah, I love. I think it really was. It's a film that's directed. I mean, almost perfectly. I mean, I think it would make Hitchcock proud. Really, seeing this film today. Uh, his use of of placing the main character played by Park Hay Il, his character of Jang, into the situations he's investigating, is just an absolutely wonderful way to show his excellent sleuthing, uh, while also positing red herrings, which is a favorite of Hitchcock, and giving 
life to what could be boring investigation drivel. You know, I mean, every what do we hear all the time in film school and everything you make a movie show, don't tell show, don't tell. And this is just a wonderful way that uh, 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 sort of a director quirk to be able to show this investigation that's happening, but in a way that is visual for the audience, us. Uh, the story itself is very charged and it follows Jang and his quest to solve a man's death from a climbing accident as he becomes more and more enamored with the victim's widow, all while trying to balance being a cop in a bigger city away from his wife in another town. And I think that kind of, I appreciate it. I really like that extra element of it. It's not just the case. It's not just the relationship within the case. It's also the relationship of the main character and it's all kind of coming together. And there's um, a few specific scenes more in like the latter half of the movie where everything kind of all comes crashing together and uh, just causes um, a little bit of mayhem, but it's a very, it's a, it's just an, an epic feeling movie. I, I can't really, I know that is a, is a big word, but just the fact that it's just, it takes place over multiple months, different cities, different investigations, uh, and it has just a very, very good twists and turns. Uh, it was billed by Variety as, quote, your new Korean thriller obsession after Parasite. And I think that's a good way to describe it. I mean, it's a it it, it definitely nails the thriller element of it. Um, a Tong Wei's character of Sung, she's the widow. Her performance is uh, particularly engaging because she clearly has a lot to say, but also a lot to hide as well. And her intentions are not uh, always pure, but it's so incredibly difficult in her performance to tell the difference. And I think that that is just the the hallmark of a, of a great acting performance. Uh, it's a little surprising that it didn't get more love in the Academy Awards. I thought Wook could have absolutely gotten a Best Director nod and n- not felt out of place, um, but it didn't even get a, a, a nomination for a uh, foreign language film, which is very surprising. I feel like that was going to be, uh, at least if it's going to get one thing, it was going to get that. But it definitely, for me, it could definitely compete with some of the other best films of the year. So um, this one, I, I always try to think about one that it, it, maybe in the future years, if we were to go back and redo some of these lists, this one I think could probably creep up a little bit if I watched it, you know, the more you watch it and, and pick up on stuff. And and, oh yeah, it's kind of yeah. formally like a puzzle watching it. Yeah, it really is. Uh, it, it really is formally brilliant. It the story didn't quite connect with me as much, which is why it didn't make my list. But a formally brilliant film. The editing is great. Mm-hmm. It is very slightly hilarious at points. Like there's this one moment where when the detective first meets the girl, he's going to interrogate her. He buys her this really expensive sushi that the other cops looking looking like, at him doing they're like what the fuck are, are you, you doing, doing? like you don't, you don't put this on the company card you know yeah and then later on in the film when there's a little bit more frustration in the relationship he gets her like some shitty food when he's talking to her <laughs> here yeah 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 no but it, it, it is a formally gorgeous film mm-hmm. i really I really did appreciate it as well so i'm happy to yeah. see it on yeah my number six i move on to documentary number two number two number two so this is George Carlin's American Dream. I kind of thought this might show up. Yeah, you, you know me. This is an HBO documentary, two-part, nearly four hours, about three and a half hours. Comes to us from Judd Apatow and Michael Montefiglio. And as a lifelong fan of the late George Carlin, the man of whom no one is looking down on from comedies 
highest peaks. I I knew an encapsulation film like this would come around eventually, and it's been 15 years since he died. And Ryan, I don't know if you remember this, but you were the first person to text me to let me know that he died. Oh, no. Yeah, I've hated you ever since. So sorry was, about that. This is your time for revenge. I now associate you with George Carlin's death. Oh, um, I was working at Borders Bookstore in Pasadena at the time. Oh, no. Dealing with insufferable customers. God, the public sucks. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah the news really weighed on me because since I was about 13 or 14, I kind of always viewed Carlin more as a prophet than a comedian with the fortunate byproduct of all his insights being hilarious he's the first person i can recall to explicitly challenge institutions of power like government and religion and also point sharp critiques at humanity itself and enter the american dream so apatow and monfiglio had a really daunting task here as or as apatow put it quote i hope i don't fuck this up So what emerges is a nearly four-hour exploration full of his insight, putting him into historical context, the drama from his personal life that was not very well documented, and most crucially, I think, a personal transformation, the likes of which I don't think has an equal in popular culture that I can think of at the moment, his transformation from suit and tie buttoned up guy who goes on ed sullivan and does a really classic safe made for tv comedy routine to counterculture icon and polemicist that we know and at least i i love today um it's a portrait of his iconoclasm of his deep personal flaws of which there were many and also just the biting genius that he had the genius which kind of stepped outside of its surroundings to examine the state of american society for what it is and always crucially what it could be always rooted in a very deep love of individuals as opposed to groups and a love of human expression as its anchor stone so late in his career apatow's film notes that her own stage act got very sardonic and cynical so much so that it kind of risked a full-on collapse and it never quite got there for me but it was definitely skating on the brink of collapse for a couple years uh and contrary to popular opinion i don't really think carlin hated humanity i think he was more disappointed by it is how i would sum it up frustrated yeah yeah in all of our power struggles and our lack of respect for nature and man's inhumanity to man and as he used to say quote never trust a group of people who all wear the same hat <laughs> uh, the film's boldest stroke is probably in the last hour or so where it kind of extrapolates extrapolates carlin's ethos to things that even post date his life um it probably proved divisive for some of the hardcore fans but i I think it fits just for the simple reason that it all falls under his umbrella of it's all bullshit folks, mm-hmm. it's all bullshit. And it's bad for you. Um, I saw him live in twice, uh, once in Vegas in 2004 and the other time in the Bay area in Livermore of all places in at a vineyard in 2006. And not a year passes that I don't really miss his commentary on the circus that we call American life. And, 
I mean, as he used to say, I'll give him the last word because he deserves it. When you're born into this world, you get a ticket to the freak show. If you're born in America, you get a front row seat. Classic. <laughs> yeah, very, very good documentary trying to encapsulate the mon the monolith that was George Carlin. And it's interesting because nobody has really stepped into that, into his shoes. Now, not saying that they would fill them with any sort of, in any meaningful way, but I mean, as the closest we have, like John Stewart, I mean, who's the one that now is the one who speaks truth to power in a comedic way or, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's tricky to see. Cause I mean, it is a, a very charged environment that we live in now anyway, but I'm, it's interesting that I don't feel like there's any sort of counterculture comedian who is, you know, doing this whole telling it like it is sort of thing. It's interesting. Not yeah. There's there's no one that's ever really ascended to that level outside of probably Richard Pryor. Mm -hmm. But but they're contemporaries I mean, though. Typically, they, they, they technically, were, yeah. you know. So I mean, modern day comedians. I mean, Who knows? Bill Burr know. is strikingly insightful. Oh that, yeah. Okay. That I that I think kind of belies his image of an, just an everyman and a mm -hmm. blue collar guy. And because I think if you're really listening to what he's saying, there's a lot of really intelligent observation in there that he just kind of packages in this, you know, Bostonian don't mm -hmm. give a fuck loud mouth kind of attitude. Um, he's, he might be one of the closest and sometimes, hmm. sometimes Chris rock can get up there to that level, but no one was ever to able to ever really maintain it. Like he did like, yeah, um, hmm. where his whole show was just kind of an education in addition to a series of laughs. But yeah, I don't think anybody's quite there. Well, I guess the correct answer is Joe Rogan. So number five for me is uh, hot dog fingers for everyone, baby. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Yes. Yes. So, the descendants of Michelle Yeoh to her rightful place as kick-ass. She is a queen. Star. And she's been kicking ass for 30 years. But it just it took a movie that is is been seen by a lot of people, I think, to kind of show her off, essentially. Uh, but this is uh, Daniel's Quan and Scheinert, and they've crafted the most original film of not only this year, but I think of a lot of other years, just a cosmic gumbo melting pot of genre and story and, and everything. Um, the acting of Kiwe Kwan, who is uh, not surprisingly the front runner, I would say, for best supporting actor and, and well-deserved. The aforementioned Michelle Yeoh, Jamie Lee Curtis, Stephanie Sue. I mean, they they all get a ton of well-deserved credit. But for me, and it's not something we really discuss, I think hardly ever, the real star of this show is costume designer Shirley Carrada, who manages to pull inspiration from all across multiverses to properly outfit their stars. Um, Sue's Jobu Tapaki outfits are madness and over-the-top glitz and glam, while Curtis's look is actually based off of a real IRS agent from a magazine about IRS employees from the mid-2000s, um, which is bonkers to me. She's never allowed herself to look more unflattering on yeah, camera. I, I know. respect the hell out of her for it. I mean, hey, it's it's that's what sometimes can win you an award. So, but... <laughs> that's Charlie's their own. Exactly. Yeah. Oftentimes, I feel like costumes can kind of be overlooked, but I just I really wanted to mention it off the top here because the gall to go to the places it goes with them is just absolutely top notch. Um, and it somehow manages to pack in a story about life as an immigrant in the United States 
the relationship you can have with your mother and LBGT, LGBTQ plus struggles all sort of in the same film. And it just it, it balances all of these other story elements so well and, and bounces them off one another as well. Visually, there's not really a film outside of earlier mid 2000s Aronofsky that can really compete with Daniels's deft touch with, you know, quick cuts, zooms, whip pans as you go from one multiverse to another multiverse. And really, their biggest achievement is it makes you feel for a rock. A literal inanimate fucking object. So one of the funniest scenes of the year. It's oh, amazing. I yeah, mean, this was this was with the crowd. Absolutely yeah. killed with the crowd I was with. Just and just dead silent, except for text on a screen. And it's and so that is a testament to 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 their skill in, in making this one. I mean, and this was the multiverse movie we all needed. You know, it Doctor was, yeah. Doctor Strange can go kick a googly eyed rock for me for yeah. you know for yeah, all intents and purposes. For that matter, like nothing hit the multiverse as compellingly as this film. Just did. this one. It, I maybe, mean, it, maybe Spider Verse got there too. Well, you know? yeah, it was years ago, years ago. But uh, it, I mean, it has a lot to say. But above all, I think at the end of the day, it's simply a fun watch that you can go back to and find something else to love about it every time you do. So uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. Uh, makes it to top five with a bullet for me. Yeah, a logistical triumph on top of everything else. I was thinking, who is the hero of this movie? Because there's so many candidates. And for me, just having gone through a couple of productions now, it might be the UPM who just managed the whole fucking shoot. Because like, what does that mean? Who is that? You have to be you have to be more specific. Is the unit production manager? Like, okay, it's it's the guy basically who does all the scheduling and. Oh know, wow! Yeah, yeah, you know, releases all the you know who goes what who goes where and Damn. plans for all that and it's it's i don't even know how you do a shooting schedule around this film because every scene goes to like 90 different locations as soon as it really starts to ramp up so i was more just blown away on a technical level mm-hmm. than the fuck they managed to shoot yeah it. i mean um, i'd love to see the script of the little like <laughs> the notes or just sort of like the annotations because they have to just shoot each little individual section, everything, everywhere, all at once, and then, and then the the it, it, through the magic of filmmaking and editing, it was able to all come together. Yeah, an insanely creative film. It it actually started to I started to get a little fatigued by it towards maybe the last half hour or so because it's just it's just relentless absurdity being thrown at you. Yeah, I loved it. I'm, in, I'm into hours. it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, an, an absolutely insane film that. You want to talk about the Northman, man, like that this is like the movie that that reignited a love for seeing movies with a crowd again this year. And definitely. Very so you, you saw this one in a theater. I did. Awesome. Yeah. OK, yeah, good. It's, it's getting the, it's getting the love that it should get. And yep. Michelle Yeoh is just a total rock star. So power to her. Absolutely. All, All right. So my number five, Ryan, I'm going to need a little help on this one. Ooh. Yes, you heard or maybe did not hear that right, Ryan. But the Mashank podcast has just got the need, the need for speed. For speed! And number five is Top Gun Maverick, Joseph Kaczynski's adrenaline shot of 1980s awesomeness. It reminds us just how great Hollywood blockbusters can be when the chief goal is to entertain rather than appeal to focus groups and four-quadrant nothingness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, for some reason, lately, it's taken the production efforts of Tom Cruise to remind us why movie theaters exist. I mean, 
it seems like every great action film that we've seen has been a film of his aside from Fury Road and I don't know. Maybe everything everywhere. Yeah, that's about it. It's just a full throttle nostalgia plunge in the best possible sense outstandingly photographed and conceived action and yes the ultimate dad movie the plotting simple gets points for me for its clarity i mean it's riff on the x-wing bomber run from star wars at the very end was meticulously set up and graphically presented so when it gets to the final set piece i think the set piece itself just carries the gravity of expectation because the plot is so well understood in a good way, not in a, a cloying way. Mm-hmm. The audience, you know, they know the beats and every fighter jet bank afterburn maneuvered. And it just sits all beautifully in the shadow of the ticking clock that's been established. So Tom Cruise and company, they, they really put in the muscle to sell this film, just intertwining the spectacular aerial acrobatics of the original film with modern visual effects and just a, a you are there kind of realism, not a perfect film. An early scene, uh, I think it's with Ed Harris is just ludicrous <laughs> that it just would never happen in real life. Um, and Jennifer Connelly's character while she's giving it her all, and she's always a welcome figure in my cinematic world. The screenplay just doesn't really care about her. And she kind of only exists to give Maverick a place to go when he's not in a supersonic aircraft. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that aside, I mean, Maverick just it benefits from a strangely good Miles Teller that I didn't see coming. And just this motley crew of whippersnapper young pilots who are given, I think, just enough development to track beyond cardboard cutouts that we would normally get in a film like this. It's, for me, the a really astute blend of familiarity while also bringing something fresh and it's also the first, the first film I can think of that acknowledges that Tom Cruise is actually getting older. Um, yeah. A, stu- a stubborn fact that probably betrays what is surely a dwindling back supply of Thetans <laughs> available <laughs> to him from the Scientology Center. But nevertheless, the man's a true movie star, perhaps our last. And this was just an absolute fucking blast. Yeah, it's, it's funny to... It, it always sort of feels weird to give credit to Tom Cruise, but you sort of, I mean, you know, I, I guess it's easier to know where to go. Well, yeah, but, but I mean, it's easy to separate art from artists when there's no sort of like, you know, sort of like really bad stuff that you kind of have to do because yeah, you can, you can be thankful for Tom Cruise, the actor, but maybe not Tom Cruise, like the person outside of the persona that he gives. Um, but uh but yeah i'm 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 glad this was on just missed mine but i i'm i'm glad it was uh i'm glad it was on yours so yeah yeah just uh just just a fun time it was um, just a a damn good popcorn movie mhm yep yep uh well my number 4 and you kind of guessed this we had talked a little bit about this just uh, in briefly just talking texting beforehand uh the uh my number four was the yearly christmas car that my wife and i put out and it's glass onion a knives out story uh, well, I think your number four was your christmas card last year too was it with some barb and star number barb four? and star i forget where it was but yeah maybe that's just where the that's that's, your that's the christmas card right so. right 
Well, yeah, yeah. Number four is apparently the Christmas card. That's slot. the Christmas card slot. All right, I'll have to remember that for next year. Uh, but this is a just a delicious mystery that I think narrowly surpasses the original. There's more humor, whodunitness. Uh, Dave Batista firing a gun while wearing a speedo. I feel like Stefan talking about all these things. <laughs> like <laughs> this, this mystery has everything: humor, whodunitness, Dave Batista firing a gun while wearing a speedo. So it's a it's a wonderful mock-up of the obscenely wealthy. And it, nothing has given me greater pleasure outside of the film than just seeing all these like right-wing fuckboys just sort of rush to denounce Ryan Johnson yet again uh, for their perceived or for his perceived sort of like uh, mock-up of Elon Musk, essentially. He never mentions Musk by name. He never really, uh, I mean, he just sort of gives, you know, Edward Norton plays Miles Braun, who is this sort of tech billionaire who is just an idiot. Uh, never again, never mentioned by name, you know, never says, oh, I'm, you know, oh, Elon, such and such. But the fact is that he is rich and he's dumb. And so it's like, well, he must be talking about Elon. We need to go defend him. Um, but uh, Craig's Benoit Blanc, obviously Daniel Craig uh, returns. He oozes charm in Southern Hokum in his return to the character. But the real, uh, the real sort of fun bit is that deftly, done mid-movie switch that occurs uh plot wise that you don't really see coming you're not really too sure where it's going but it's a great little uh twist that just kind of changes the perspective of of the whole movie and kind of how how you you see it um but what is so great about how this film is crafted and really the last one and also, I guess he's drawing a lot of inspiration from uh, old episodes of Columbo, which uh, Casey and I have started watching because we've been watching Poker Face as well. But it's just this idea and this specific type of genre, the not just the who done it, but rather why done it. Like it's not, you know, there's a little bit more of a, of a mystery than those Columbo episodes or, you know, basically who you know who sees who, who's who's doing the murder. And you're sort of unraveling it as you go along. Um, but he's interested. Johnson is in this movie in terms of, yeah, who did it, but also why. And um, and and following the plotting of that is uh, is, is very fun. But in, in keeping with the costume theme, something I tracked when it because we saw it uh, a couple times when it was released in theaters. It was only out in theaters for like a week and we saw it twice. <laughs> um, but I, I track this right from the beginning because it's so iconic, but it didn't really dawn on me until later i was like wondering did other people pick up on this or something but using the flashbacks with norton's character throughout the years it shows him kind of aping other looks from the different time periods that you're seeing and there was one that i saw immediately because i was like he looks just like frank tj Mackey in one of the (laughs) in a number of the scenes and it's like right so because he's got the same like tom cruise hair like a very like a orange like a uh, collared shirt with like a vest over it leather vest and everything and there's a sequence where he uh looks like steve jobs so he's got like a black turtleneck on and jeans and stuff and it's kind of meant to show that he doesn't really have many original thoughts for himself he doesn't really have uh he doesn't do anything original uh he's he's just stealing even his look from other people uh but you know, it's just a nice little touch, which is just shows a bigger truth about him, which is, in fact, Miles Braun is an idiot. 
So <laughs> just uh, All right, enough Southern f- fried inflection there. Right. I'll yeah. Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. It just says, it literally says on my notes, parentheses, Benoit Blanc voice and parentheses, <laughs> just to re- just a little remember that for myself. Uh, but I mean, obviously it's like, as per uh, this particular type of, of genre and just a Ryan Johnson movie in general, wonderful ensemble cast standout performances, but Janelle Monet especially blew me away with her depth of performance and just really shines in a group full of great pros. You know, she's not a, a seasoned actor, but I'm hoping that after this she'll, she'll pick up on more roles, but um, another populist pick, I think, but there's something about sitting in a theater with a grin for two plus hours. And that just seems sorely lacking. So long live Benoit Blanc, long live Benoit Blanc mysteries. And, you know, let's just keep making all the types of movies that I like, I guess. (laughs) Another, Beatles flex at the end of a film dude yeah the the title track which I am always a huge fan of whenever Mm -hmm. somebody can actually afford that (laughs) uh yeah yeah more of a this was probably more of a surface level enjoyment for me yeah I I liked it I I, not quite as much as you did I think and I probably prefer the the original still by a, a healthy margin but he does circumvent the form in some really fun ways whether I mean it's basically a story about idiocy, mm-hmm. you know, so, which uh, was a nice little twist. I mean, right. a lot of people in this film are just fucking idiots, mm-hmm. and and watching um, Benoit Blanc just dismantle that does have a, a a fair amount of fun to go along with it. I heard somebody on a podcast really quick before we move on that she, they were describing themselves as an actor and a disruptor, and I'm like, that's not that's not something you want to associate yourself with. I don't think. No, no, no. Neither of them, actually. So, yeah. Yeah. Actually, the the detour in the middle kind of lost me a little bit because it it just kind of killed a little of the the momentum I thought the film had going forward. Like this whole section where we kind of reveal who a certain character is. Mm -hmm. uh, There wasn't really any dramatic or narrative tension in that bit it was more just like oh here's what happened before yeah, it's a shocking uh, twist and i think it's just yeah but i think that that fits the genre i think of just like a you know let's twist it up a little bit so that way you can now think about earlier parts of the film now knowing what you know now and rolling it back and and, and kind of having a new perspective on it yeah yeah it's kind of a kind of a speed bump uh, for me but i i do i do really like the whole did I just see what I think I just yeah. saw? Mm-hmm. I, did that? Was there a sleight of hand there that is fully obvious to camera? If you happen to be looking at that character, which is a mm-hmm. lot of fun. Yep, yeah, a lot of fun. So my number four, after narrowly escaping the danger zone, Ryan. Yeah, <laughs> with my life, I'm going back to a more understated and contemplative zone, which I, which is I guess is a lesser known Kenny Loggins hit song. Yeah. Um, I'm going to a film called After Yang. Oh uh, yeah, uh, this is did not see this. Really, really wanted to though. Yeah, yeah. This is from Koganada, who did one film called Columbus before this, which I have yet to see. But Colin Farrell makes his second entrance onto my list this year with a very different performance in a very, very different film. So Koganada is essentially riffing on Spike Jones's Her here with a little dash of Ex Machina, and I think even some minority report with the futurism on display but it has a sci-fi premise and it kind of really gently provoked some very fascinating questions on humanity and specifically memory 
So Farrell plays a father in a near future setting who, along with his daughter and wife, share their home with Yang, who is an android, or as the film calls it, a techno-sapien. So one day, Yang malfunctions and quote-unquote dies. And the rest of the film is really Farrell's character, Jake, playing detective as to what happened to Yang mechanically, and kind of slowly reckoning with what that figure meant in his and his family's life and how their interactions with this seemingly AI presence can just sort of reveal a different outlook and a different consideration for their own lives. Um, the film is interestingly adverse to traditional conflict that I think we get in most films that just innately use that kind of structure. Um, it's very deliberate. And even in cases in the film where there's a potentially antagonistic or confrontational scene that mm -hmm. it actually just kind of shortcuts and diffuses it and just moves on with the story, which I think was a, a deliberate touch. Um, the contract, I guess if you could call a conflict present here, it mostly exists between just the stages of between really looking inside yourself and epiphany. It's like somewhere in that gray area. So as Jake kind of gets more fully invested in what happened to Yang, he starts to tap into Yang's understanding of memory. And using some very special glasses, he's transported via visual effects. So shout out to some really fucking cool visual effects here. Into what is essentially, I guess, would be Yang's hard drive, but visually it resembles more of a, a star field where each little pinpoint of light can be accessed like a traditional memory. Huh. So when he starts to explore what Yang felt compelled to remember in his AI robotic life, um, he starts to, it starts to bring a little bit of beauty out of the mundane and a little bit of meaning out of generally what would seemingly be empty moments in each of our own personal lives. Uh, it, it's a very soft and quiet film and it exists in this future that distinguishes itself only by very passive observation to some superior tech. Like it, there's a few recurring scenes where they're just inside this futuristic vehicle that looks like something right out of Minority Report, but they never cut outside of the car, probably because of budget. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but they don't cut outside it. And it just kind of leaves you to just interpolate the space around it and what's actually going on here. And the car just kind of seems to glide. It's self-driving. Um, a very cool touch and there's also just this kind of connection to nature in this futuristic world too where it's like they're going forward with technology but kind of back to an appreciation of nature which is very cool to see visually i mean in terms of if a movie had a volume this would be like 90 minutes of library time wow <laughs> um, but i think like a library there's just you know an infinite amount to get lost in and consider just in terms of questions and it's not as cold and humorless as it sounds. And there's a really, really fun moment in and a blatantly cinephile nod where Colin Farrell just does this flawless fucking Werner Herzog impression <laughs> just out of the blue. And if you're like me and you're just a little bit familiar with Werner Herzog, you'll just get the biggest grin on your face. It's like, what the yeah. fuck? <laughs> uh, it's, it's glorious. Yeah. Um, as a double feature, this and her would be the most. Yeah. The most the perfect lineup uh for me but um i wouldn't plan on the character of of yang out sexing scarlett johansson 
Bounty hunting is a very dangerous profession. <laughs> After Yang is my number four. That's cool. Yeah, I the, I know we kind of give ourselves a little bit of like a hard stop. So there was a few that just for random reasons that I just didn't get a chance to to catch up on that I would have liked to. But I'll try to catch up on it before the Academy Awards at the very least. So it's a be- it's a beautiful little mm-hmm. movie. It really is. Well, my number three. I guess you can kind of count me as a card carrying member of the Babylon Hive, baby. Babylon really? number three. Or, I know. Wait, this is your number three, you said. Yeah, yeah. What is it about number th- fucking threes, man? <laughs> what happened? What was the other one? <laughs> no, like this is this is our hardest disagreement so far. <laughs> yeah. I and I know that. Every and I goddamn year it's number three. I, I I understand that. And I know it's a love it or hate it sort of situation. And I don't know if there's been a more divisive <laughs> movie uh in the past few years, but I mean That's so funny. Yeah, this was the best movie made about the movies this year, and it wasn't particularly close. There was a few other contenders in there that were like, ooh, the magic of cinema. Uh, this was the only one, I think, that that did anything for me. You're speaking of the UPM on Everything Everywhere that kind of transported me to this thing here with, uh, I mean, just in the first hour. It's some of the zaniest madcap stuff set to film in this whole year. The first hour, hour and a half, I think, I think are gonna there's there's gonna be an appreciation for this film down the road. And I think that just how Damien Chazelle was able to navigate just logistically, but navigate the madness of a mid-20s Hollywood party and the absolute madcap that all of that entailed, shifting into just 45 minutes of just zipping the camera through making silent films on a silent film set back in the 1920s, mid 1920s. I mean, there's elephants, drugs, nudity, dead prostitutes, cigarettes, and enough champagne to fill the Nile in the first hour. And that's, I mean, the energy in this about the elephant's asshole. Yeah. I mean, that's like right off the bat. You just are like, this is what you're getting here. It is asshole got a close up, and I want you to acknowledge it. It got a close up. It did. You're right. And then it expanded. Um, but uh, the, the the another standout sequence, the origin of sound and the shooting of the college scene with Margot Robbie. Uh, oh, fucking hilarious. So funny. So, so just, I mean, you don't really think about the early days of film and the early, you know, the early sound days and just how the technology needed to work in order to make it happen. Uh but again, another another standout moment, the not moment really, but Justin Hurwitz, again, one of the best scores uh, of the year, always able to match the energy of the movie, um, a sparkling cast. I don't think there's really a standout. I think Diego Calva, Margot Robbie, Brad Pitt, Gene Smart, and a nightmare-fueled cameo by a, just a deranged Tobey Maguire, uh, which if we had to chop anything from this three hour and eight minute movie, it would probably be that sequence. Although I understand why they were kind of going with the as above, so below sort of idea where this is how we used to party. And now later on, we're now, we now have to take these down into the, into the depths of, of hell almost. Um, And I know again, it's a divisive thing, but the history of film montage uh, worked on me, you know, sue me. I don't know. Maybe I was just, I know it's not really? for everyone. 
It, it did. I just didn't think that it was in the right movie. Yeah, I think <laughs> I, I, think I, I, I don't. I don't think it was earned. Like the the it, by itself, it was a beautiful little segment. Yeah, I just didn't get what led up to it as justifying it. Because I, 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 I think it it was because I think based on where the characters watching a Diego Calva, just thinking about his journey of the last 30 years in this and seeing singing in the rain back when he was almost producing singing in the rain, you know, so, so long ago, I think just even the history of that from there, it just a history of the, from the 1920s to like the mid 1950s. And then thinking about everything from the 1950s to 2023, I mean, it's just, it's very overwhelming, I think, just in terms of, uh, of, of of where we were and where we've come. But it's wild, crazy, and I've always appreciated when a filmmaker takes huge swings. Uh, sometimes it connects, or sometimes I appreciate it even if it doesn't connect. But I think this one connected more often than not. It's a sprawling, fantastic epic about a wonderful period time period in the in the industry. But you know what? I'm putting my stamp on it. Fucking, I love fucking Babylon. And I know that's, again, not a popular opinion, especially with the other person on this podcast that would appear. But the first thing, as soon as that directed by Damien Chazelle thing came up, I just looked at Casey and I was like, that was fucking radical. Like, I just I mean, I was just so charged up by it. I was so energized by it. I thought that it would kind of lose some of the luster that came in from the first uh, hour and a half or so. But uh, to me, it it, it held up. And uh, yeah, I loved it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, I I'm glad to hear your take on it and why you and why you like it because I was really really struggling to to identify with or appreciate much of what was on screen at all. Like to me, it was sprawling, just in the messy and uneven and chaotic and tonally jarring sense. Mm-hmm. Where I never felt it really coalesce into a single piece on on anything. Um, I think the only thing that in terms of interesting characterization was probably Brad Pitt's character to me, where it kind of has this, this Gene Kelly singing in the rain thing happening. It's the, the transition from silent films to talkies. And where is my, where is mm-hmm. my, place? where's my place when that, right. when that, when that sun sets, you know? Um, and uh, so that's a, that had a little nice pull for me, but yeah, it, it, for me, it just kind of seemed on the surface, like what it what it is, like it, it seemed like a it seemed like Damien Chazelle's Wolf of Wall Street, where mm-hmm. it's it's responding to essentially, I think, public characterizations of the filmmaker in a way where, with in the Scorsese sense, I was like, oh, Scorsese's lost his edge, you know, and then Scorsese, mm. fuck you, I'm putting up a three hour piece of punk rock set on Wall Street, you know. Mm-hmm. And and this kind of has the same feel to it for me, where I mean I wasn't a, a fan of Wolf of Wall Street either. Um, but it just kind of has that feel of him trying to rebuke those criticisms and doing something truly outrageous and sprawling to use your word. Whereas mm-hmm. I, I don't think he he quite had the the acumen to rein it all into like a a single cohesive portrait of something. But there are moments in isolation that were far and away some of the funniest shit i saw all year yeah you know like the that scene the rattlesnake scene mm-hmm. uh, out in the desert was fucking great yeah and yeah and the ending montage i mean it was it was an insanely bold and ambitious move to throw that in there and i think that i just i wasn't on board enough with the film leading to it to 
to kind of absorb that into the movie. And I kind of just ended up looking at it as like an isolated event. And probably the reason he really wanted to make the film from the get go was was that sequence. He probably had that sequence in his head and then he just backfilled the rest. Um, It's messy. I'll I'll give it that. I mean, it is, it is messy as fuck, but I normally like really big swings as well. Yeah. This one just didn't click with me for some reason, but I'm happy it did. Yeah. It seems it's a, it is, I mean, outside of like last Jedi or something, it's a very much like, this is more like within film people. I think it is very divisive and I think it is, Mm -hmm. it it is very much love it or hate it for sure. So I was really into it. And so I think that that's why that's like right down the middle. Yeah. 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 It it is a love it or hate it experience. For sure. Which I mean, you know, you got to give him credit that, that, that he was able to have that than bland. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Any, Any day of the week. Uh, Moving on to number three, this will be documentary number three, and it'll probably be my shortest recount in McShank podcast history. It is Moon Age Daydream, the ah. documentary about David Bowie from director Brett Morgan. And yeah, I mean, words fail when attempting to describe this psychedelic visual onslaught of Moon Age Daydream, both a tribute and an exploration of the shape-shifting ever-changing androgynous chameleon that we knew as david bowie and all i can really muster is that this is about as abstract and mesmerizing a deep dive into bowie's life as i could possibly conceive of and there's not much in the way of traditional exposition along the way but it's more whenever we do get it's more about his ethos as an artist and just more the nature of artistry itself uh yeah i mean the man who fell to earth less than a god but more than a man fuck yes ryan what is your next film my next film is one that uh we have discussed already but not on this podcast oh number two is the batman oh yes yes Yes, uh you know we've got a whole podcast about it so i won't go too long but i know i I, that's that's (laughs) been an out before but it I really is a two and a half hour podcast. And oh, we did a long, quite, yeah, yeah. Reach the length of the film. <laughs> yeah, we're almost there. But obviously, I mean, it's a moody film just dripping with this kind of like 70s crime thriller. Outstanding way to frame the Batman story through the lens of his detective work. Uh, Pattinson is is a standout. He's, uh, he's given so much more room to be great from his director, Matt Reeves, and his choice to keep Batman at the front and center of so much of the story rather than uh, Bruce Wayne, which I feel like we could kind of get uh, a little bit of that, that balance lost, but this is a Batman forward Batman centric movie. Uh, I mean, another movie that can only be described as sprawling in the settings of Gotham and the different flavor of villain that you're getting John Turturro and Colin Farrell and Paul Dano and everything. Uh, just a grimy, dirty movie. In the vein, like I mentioned, that 70s crime thriller, including literally blurring the sides of the film itself mm-hmm. to kind of give that sense of unknown off in the dark and off off mm-hmm. of the off screen. So uh, and my last point about it is just, you know, let's just put Zoe Kravitz in everything after that. <laughs> so I would love that her her uh, her her yes, performance as, and... as blue blooded cis males uh, can yeah. be it could be nothing more closer to the bullseye than putting Zoe Kravitz yeah. in just about everything. Guys, they made this for us. Finally, all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Batman, was a Batman really great. Yeah, and uh, again, so another one from the first half of the year. 
you know, most yeah. of these yeah, have been coming in from, from the first like five, six months. So Batman mm-hmm. number two for me. Still still number three in your Batman ranking. It is. Yeah. Uh it is. Yeah. I was th- I was thinking about that. I was thinking about putting that in, but yeah, it, it's it hasn't really changed much, I don't think. But yeah, still yeah, same three. with me. I have it behind mm-hmm. Dark Knight, Mask of the Phantasm, and Batman Begins still, which is a, a formidable grouping in uh, very good in, group in my mind. And it is definitely on the the uh the better end of the countless Batman adaptations we've got today. Very good choice, Ryan. Thank you. My number two is Petite Mama. Hmm. Um, this film was technically released in 2021 internationally, but we didn't get it here in the States until 2022. Uh, this is the second time that Celine Sciamma has nearly topped my list, but here she lands at number two once again after 2020's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh, she's the real deal. I think she is a fantastic filmmaker and I'm increasingly just infatuated with her stylings and, and subject matter. Um, her efforts explore just emotion, joy, grief, and just very startlingly human ways. Uh, Portrait of a Lady of Fire did it kind of with this framework of stolen glances and illicit longings and Petite Mama clocking in at an equally petite 72 minutes. Um, wow journeys really to the heart of the mother-daughter relationship um, using a, one precocious child actor and these very playful dollops of magical realism. Um, Nellie, who is uh, the daughter, an, eight, an eight-year-old, has just lost her grandmother. Um, her mother, Marion, takes her to her, the grandmother's house, also the mother's childhood home, to pack it up before selling it off. And the mother mentions to the daughter that when she was a kid, she built this hut slash fort out in the woods. And so one day Nellie goes out to try to find the hut and she comes across a girl who appears to be her age with strikingly physical similarities. Um, It is the child's mother, also as an eight-year-old, played in real life by the girl's identical twin sister. So the setup is it's for this tale of bonding between two girls and it goes through some really, really touching examples of like role playing their attempts at cooking a meal, some very probing conversation. And what really emerges is this bridge between generations and an understanding of the most challenging questions separating them in the present tense uh, while not really giving what could be considered a full answer. Um, for being such a slim volume of a film, it really has for me just an incredibly deep footprint. Uh, and the intelligence of children, I think, is so often underplayed in films. And for sure, that you know, ignorance and goofiness and, and experience always comes with that part. I mean, that's that's how we all are when we're kids. But it's the moments of perceptiveness and kind of an awareness of the bigger picture that children can that can relay is what I think Petite Mama captures so well in its twin stars. Um, one of the most hard-hitting moments for me is when uh, the girl who is playing the mother in this present, but as, a, as an eight-year-old, asks Nellie, the protagonist, are you from the future? To which Nellie replies, no, I'm from the path behind you. Um, it's just, there's a lot of statements like that that kind of take your breath away in the moment and you really just have to consider them and 
there you have it. I mean, it's just, it's a very gentle and moving film and Petite Maman, number two film of the year. Yes. Uh, so my number one, I didn't really realize it until the list started to take shape. It's one of the most recent films I saw from last year that could have been eligible for the list. Both my number one and two films are so joined at the hip thematically. And I think it's in very indissoluble ways. Um, this is another really sad, desperate ranking on my part that might as well be 1A and 1B. They both get at some very similar terrain and hint at more deeper, I think, relatable truths. And both films, in a way, they explore the mystery that is our parents in ways that I never really thought about much going in. Like, just, you know, who are our parents? What was the, what were their past lives? What were they going through? What were they maybe struggling with mm-hmm. that we didn't know? You know, of course I could just ask, you know, mom or whatever, right. Dad, whatever right now, but it, it, it kind of, it, it kind of does this, it does this bit of a magic trick. Um, no better film. It's just, globbed onto that than Charlotte Wells after sun this year for me. Um, this was a universe away from the magical realism of petite mama. It's a, it's a stunning debut film. It is, it's an, it's elliptical and, and sober and it's storytelling and it's in its examination of a father daughter relationship, which is very, idyllic on the surface but beneath lies a a series of mostly invisible fault lines which hint at the troubled nature of the father um charlotte well she introduces us to this scottish tandem of sophie played by frankie corio and her father callum played by paul mescal who i was very happy to see get a best actor nomination for this very very small film um, as they both embark on a holiday at a Turkish resort. Now, this is a real emotional one for me, um, not from really any shared personal experience I have on my own with the characters, but more just this kind of lived-in empathy for the characters on screen that Charlotte Wells is able to achieve. Um, the presentation of these two is just flawless naturalism um, if it weren't for the edits and the shot composition it would just be following people in their lives hmm. um, the strategy here is relentlessly subtle just drip feeding us hints at these underlying concerns coloring some of the experiences we're seeing whether it's the father's separation from the mother who has never seen on camera or the father's own struggles with what we can only assume are self-worth. And if we have to dig deeper, most likely depression, um, very little of the narrative is explicit, but instead it just slowly kind of chips away at our psyche and, uh, and our soul to become this sort of death by thousand cuts. Um, mm-hmm. moment to moment, the film is just speaking at a total whisper, but by the time we arrive at this, dizzyingly emotional climax. The effect has just kind of become a a deafening roar and it coalesces into probably the most moving film experience I've had watching anything since arrival would be, would be my guess. Um, The effect is just like watching reality TV, but against your knowledge, there's these invisible 
little tinkerers just unweaving the chair out from underneath you. <laughs> uh, my experience when the credits hit was of an eerie silence. Then about 30 seconds later, I just burst into tears. And I, I don't really, it surprised me because <laughs> I don't I do not do that in very many films. And there's probably a handful I can count of in my life that have done that to me. Uh, I can see this kind of being a film without a middle ground. Uh, it's kind of snapshot, more languid and methodical aesthetic would either work wonders for you or probably not work at all, depending on the viewer. Uh, but I found it to be an absolute emotional powerhouse. And along with Petite, Petite Maman, the only two flat out masterpieces I saw this year. So um so after Sun, I, I cannot recommend enough. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's on the. I can show you my list of the still things, things still to see, and that is uh, still up there with one of them. So Oof, um, yeah, getting yeah. emotional just talking about it right now. Oh my god! Wow, it, it really did a number on me, and I think it, a lot of people have been having a similar reaction, and it's just because it it doesn't beat you over the head with anything, and it just it just drops these little things every now and again that just when taken as a complete piece i just found overwhelming hmm. in ways i could have never thought going in so um yeah after sun number wow. one year for me i really thought you were going to go with another direction when you started talking a lot about like your parents and i was like oh man is he gonna put the fablemans at number one <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I i the first half of the fablemans i kind of liked <laughs> i did, didn't, didn't much did not go for it at all uh, as soon as i got to the high school subplots i was like all right i'm out no way i'm out of here <laughs> All right. Well, we've reached the moment, and we I, find out if we overlap again, uh, I'm going to tell you we don't. Ah, uh, unfortunately, it's already up on my list. Well, there's a couple things here. So, first of all, you're a son of a bitch because. Oh, okay. I mean, first stop that. We'll just stop that right there. Yeah, I mean, sure. we don't even have to elaborate on that. No, there's really no reason. Um. But in a year that was like more populist, I feel like than ever. I've been saying that word a lot this podcast because I feel like it, it's a very populist film. There was really only one film that could ca ca cap it off as the most populist of the year. And I'll tell you, one, you're a son of a bitch because you stole my thunder. And two, I motherfucking lied to you because the number one movie of the year is Top Gun fucking Maverick, baby! <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Ryan. I really oh, do. Despite I, what I say when we're not on the podcast together and your general reputation, I really love you. Oh, well, thank you for all those qualifiers, too. I appreciate it. <laughs> Dude, well played. I had no idea you were going there. Well <laughs> fucking played. And neither did I going into this film, I would think. But, I mean, just we talking about oh, wonder. face was good. It was good. Yeah, man. I'm so looking good. at you. I, I couldn't tell shit. Ah, <laughs> uh, but after being uh, such a curmudgeon regarding the first one for no real reason, uh, this one converted me. I'm a Top Gun fan now. I'm in. This is my movie, man. I'm. If people felt like this after seeing the original in theaters, I can see why it was so beloved. And you knew right from the first second. That you Welcome were gonna... to the Jedi, my friend. <laughs> Welcome to... Yes, that's true. But you knew you were going to be in good hands right when that Breckheimer Don Simpson oh. logo showed up on the screen. 
you knew exactly that like these people know what they're doing. They know where their bread's buttered. They know exactly what we want to see. When you see that logo, the entire opening sequence was reused down to the font for the main titles and the same music. I mean, it just set the stage. And I mean, I, I, I tried to couch it a little bit, but thank God for actor and film lover Tom Cruise. Steven Spielberg patting him on the back saying you brought back cinematic distribution and everything. And he and his partner in crime, Christopher McQuarrie, held on to this film like grim fucking death when all signs pointed to it needing to be released probably earlier in 2021 when movie theaters first came back or God forbid released exclusively on streaming on streaming. But they said no, Clayton. They said no. They knew what they wait. We know what we have. They knew what they had. They know what we have. They knew they needed full fucking theaters with full fucking theater energies for this one to full really fucking soar. Sound, a full fucking yeah. crowd. And thank God they did. And they were fucking rewarded. It was the highest grossing domestic film of 2022 and the fifth highest domestic grossing film ever. Ever. Number for five. A good reason. Yeah. So yeah. this one, this one, and you think about just its journey from i'm sure from a germ of an idea through you know essentially saving movie theaters but it could have gone sideways in a thousand a million different ways and in ways that other legacy sequels have in the past i say pretty much every single one i would say there's i mean other than fury road there's not right there's really at all for sure i mean tom and his co-stars glenn powell john ham jennifer connelly miles teller lewis pullman ed harris they never allow the film to dip into parody or overt silliness. Um, it's played straight, but fun, tight, but loose. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's hard to explain, but I think I think you get it. No, yeah, that's the perfect summation of it. Yeah. I mean, there are homages to the original film, but, but never in a suffocating way. No, and also tied in, woven into the serve the actual story itself, rather mm-hmm. than just putting something in front of the camera winking and saying hey remember this thing like you know there's an actual story usage for the things that they bring up mm-hmm. and i kind of think about this film in terms of uh, comparison with a movie like mission impossible fallout you know another just a, a, a just a, a wonderful tom cruise action saga but it's a fun game to play with this one on rewatch when you wa- you're, you're starting to watch it and you see all these scenes unfolding these action sequences and you start to remember and get excited about scenes that you know are still coming up. Mm-hmm. So like you're an hour into the movie, you've already seen him break the speed record, get tossed out of the bar and the training montage. And you realize you have so, 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 so many more absolute banger of scenes coming and how they all fit it into one movie is amazing to me. Uh, it's pretty Im- impressive that all of uh, the, the absolute just balance that, everything has and everything is given its appropriate weight, including bringing in old characters like Val Kilmer, for instance, Mm -hmm. when I was not even sure what his role was going to be. I mean, obviously you knew what role, but what role he was going to play within the story and um, the way that they're able to, to, to play around with um, his unfortunate uh, disorder at the time, at at the moment. Um, It's just, it's just done so perfectly. And, you feel like you're meeting up with two friends or you're, you're, you're getting a look at, at two lifelong friends. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that's just one little tiny morsel of, 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 of things that are just absolutely wonderful. 
I mean, movies were back in theaters in 2021, and I've enjoyed a decent amount of them, but movies were not fully back until Top Gun Maverick came out. Amen, and man, that amen. is a so that is a testament uh to that wonder wonderful yeah. wonderful movie and uh well, that's 45 minutes man are just oh. a white knuckle thrill ride of the highest caliber yeah as I mean, soon as you know he's gonna be the one you're like that's when it just takes off you know I mean, when john ham is looking wistfully yeah. at the window it's you know like i think that's a rhetorical question maverick <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah no it's mm-hmm. it was an absolute delight watching this um i got to see it at paramount which was a lot of fun that's cool uh, yeah that was like a couple of weeks before it, it came out just for anyone at the lot who wanted to see it and man like I'm so happy to reiterate your point that they sat on this movie for as long as they did. Uh, they could have gone the route of so many other films and just dumped it in streaming land. And it would have had probably a 10th of the effect, you know, mm-hmm. or you would have been like, Oh, I really wish that would have been in theaters or, Oh, I wish this would have had that, that, that weight to it. Yeah. I mean, even a little bit of uh, touching moments too. Um, like, Miles Teller's character, I mean, they they did a nice little nice little play with expectation in terms of the conflict that he has with Maverick. Because I mean, you would think that it's just he would hold him responsible for his father's death. Like that's the sure. thing that that would be the obvious way to do this. But that's really not the case. I mean, he's more upset for a much more specific reason that only gets more unpacked as the movie goes on. And I thought that was a nice little touch to kind of take it out of the land of, you know, expectation, I guess, and, yeah. and give, give it a little different tension and dynamic to it. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, when, when Miles Teller's character, when they cut to him on that last run and he says, talk to me, dad, like, oh, yeah, I yeah. actually choked up a little bit. It hit me. Yeah. It just hit me in the stomach in a way I could have never anticipated going in. It's a uh, nice counterbalance because that's how the you know that's kind of how it starts too with him with uh with 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 Maverick saying talk to be goose and and him saying hey, yeah I mean it's yeah it's 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 I, I, you know you know me I was a no I, I was a no fly zone so to speak for Top Gun for so not long buzzing the tower for about no, five years I wasn't and I for, and then I saw it and I was like it was fine it's good. But now yeah. it's like at the end of this one, I was like, oh, yeah, no, I'm buying like Top Gun hats and like I'm like a Top Gun guy now. That's me. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up again because I forgot to put the nail in the coffin in my own take. And I, that is I, I think that it eclipses and surpasses the original in almost every conceivable way. And that is a a very difficult trick to pull off with something that's that kind of a sacred cow. Right. In, in, in the 80s. And I, I think it just one ups it. In 30. Every 30 category. plus years, 30 plus years in between. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Well, I absolutely adore that pick, Ryan. <laughs> Thank so, you. <laughs> <laughs> that is far and away where I thought you were going with this. <laughs> where it was far and away, not where I thought Not you where you're so, thinking. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so thank you for ending it on that kind of an up note. Well, I know we have to, I know we have to wrap up, but mm-hmm. uh, a good list, I think, has had this had like a lot of, not, I mean, was there like barely any crossover. I think there Top was. Gun? Was that our only Top crossover? Gun? Top Gun may have been the only one. Top fucking Gun was our wow. only crossover this well, year. Well, if one of them, if one of them's going to be on there, I'm, I'm happy it's that one for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, 
Absolutely. Uh, any other, uh, any quickly, anything off the top of your head, number 11s you can think of stuff that almost made it just stuff you want to shout out before we, uh, um, before we wrap here. Yeah. You know, if you got a couple rattle them off and I will take a quick peek. Uh, I don't. So, <laughs> all right. Well, I can, well, maybe I'll just cut this part okay. out then. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. Well, let's see. I'll go with, oh, fucking RRR. Talk about populism. Uh, uh when i haven't you, seen you haven't I, seen our, oh, no that's I mean, the thing is like it, it's it's one of those ones where you're like oh it's it feels like such a you have to like three some hours to really kind of go for it but everyone's like no watch it in chunks watch it in chunks so i just I yeah know. okay well yeah I'll, I'll just i'll put that one aside for a second and say okay um, tar had a lot of it that i a lot of things i liked in it it didn't, it didn't quite make it in the end for me though yeah me neither uh barbarian i thought mm-hmm. it was a lot of fun um speak no evil which is this yes we watched that did yeah speak no evil? we did yeah oh my goodness that so frustrating fucked up <laughs> movie of the year <laughs> like why don't you just talk 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 to people it was so I frustrating no, like i i know exactly what you're saying and yeah i, I, think, I think the movie makes it work because there's a lot of just potential you know just head slapping moments in it yeah but i think in the establishment between the two families it it's it's in there the reasons why it 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 proceeds like it does um and it really ventures into this place i really really love which is this kind of old testament evil (laughs) yeah oh my Uh, god yes that it just oof yeah not a movie that's easy Mm -hmm. to forget yeah um but uh yeah rrr i think my review of rrr was rip cinema 1878 to 2022 <laughs> you did it you son of a bitch congratulations yeah <laughs> i don't even know like ever i talked about it with my supervisor uh at, at work after i had seen it because he had been pushing me to watch it and the first thing he said was do we even need to make movies anymore <laughs> <laughs> like i think it's all here we did it, guys! Congratulations. I mean, yeah, the the dance battle set against colonialism. I mean, it's just it, it, it's it, the best. It's yep. What are you gonna do? Best. It's the fuck best. But did you say you'd seen it or no? I haven't. No. So I still oh, haven't. Okay. I still haven't seen it yet. So I'm. Uh, it's, it's like a. It's again. It's it feels like kind of like a. You really have to just go for it. You mm-hmm. know, over three hours, but you can still kind of break it up into chunks because of the sections and stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a that's. I'll linger on RRR. Mm-hmm. My, my most regrettable didn't make it this yeah. year. Yeah, I really enjoyed Jackass Forever. Uh, I it? thought that was really funny. Uh, There's a special place in my heart for Ambulance too. Uh, really? Ambulance I, I, as well. I, okay. You didn't, did you like? Did you see it or did you not? Oh, I so on a couple of my flights back and forth from Montreal. Mm-hmm. Both times, someone in front of me was watching. Ambulance. Oh, how funny! And yeah. so I may have got the whole movie in both yeah. trips, <laughs> but all I really took from it is Michael Bay needs to have his drones taken away. No, he <laughs> needs to do more of them. I so think it's, yeah. just, it's just a kid gone wild in the candy yeah. store. And he needs to be stopped. Uh, nope was probably another one I think that just kind of missed for me. Uh, it's not as I don't feel like it's as fully realized. It feels like yeah. this is more of his Jordan Peele's first movie. Well, honestly, mm-hmm. um, but uh, there was still a lot, a, a, a lot to enjoy. A lot of great ideas that yeah. never really found its its footing in yeah. terms of a satisfying experience. But the the threads in there are really they're they're there, and that's why it makes it odd that it makes it feel like oh well, if you just kind of like this is a guy finding his voice, so it makes it strange that it's his third movie and not his first one. But anyway, right. so 
Um, but yeah, that will just about do it. I think uh, another year, another wonderful. We by freaking hell or high water, we were able to get this recorded. We get this one in the can, baby. You mean it wasn't a technically flawless evening? <laughs> um, I mean, no. For the people listening at home, perfect all the way through, hundred percent. Yeah, I'm sure absolutely. Your gentle editing hand will convey yeah. that experience. Absolutely. So, all right. Well, uh, maybe when you get home, we'll have to do a, a one in person. We'll have to 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 think of something when you get back. Get yeah, together. that would be great. Well, 15 years, Ryan. This was our 15th time doing Damn. this. So. And ev- and I I think next year will probably be the one when we finally get it right. I think. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you're optimistic. Yeah, uh, it's how I've always been. Optimist Prime, if you will. You're Optimist Prime. That's absolutely. That's mm-hmm. yes. All right. Well, always, always one of the best and most anticipated days of my year. So, Ryan, pleasure doing this with you time and time again. You as well, buddy. Uh, and for Clayton, I'm Ryan. And uh, bye. <laughs>